All right. Just four more studies, or I believe, in this uh, examination of the life of Jesus as we draw it to a close this month. Uh, that's been the, our course of study since August of last year, and uh, it's always enjoyable for me to spend time engaged in, in an examination of the life of Jesus. Uh, tonight we are going to continue our look at his trials, but if you recall last week I mentioned we were going to split it up into two parts. We were going to start with the Jewish trial, which we began uh, examining last week, and there's a little bit more we need to talk about in regards to the part of his trial that dealt with Jewish officials, and then we'll transition the rest of our evening into looking at uh, the trial as it related to Roman officials. So I, I want to offer a, a short reading uh, related to the Jewish trials, just to wrap up our examination of that. Um, and so uh, it is uh, still part of my um, collaborative reading of where I've brought all four gospel accounts together and meshed them into one overall reading. But this is just for the Jewish trials. We're going to wrap, wrap up this section, and then we'll read for the Roman trials in just a minute. So uh, let, let's start this section in Luke chapter 22 verse 66, and then we'll transition into one verse from Matthew. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated on the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And they bound him and led him away and deliver, delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, last week we spent some time talking about the ways in which Jesus' trial before Caiaphas was technically illegal according to the uh, policies of the day. Now, did you notice that reading started by saying, when it was day? See, that trial took place during the course of the evening, which was one of the illegalities of his trial. And so, it's very interesting, he had already been in front of Caiaphas with at least a quorum of the Sanhedrin present. And if you remember, a quorum only was 23 out of 70 members of the Sanhedrin. So he was in that group all night on trial. And now day breaks, and guess what they do? They assemble the Sanhedrin again. And the reason I think they assembled the Sanhedrin at, as soon as daylight hit is so, they could give, so that they could accomplish two basic things. Uh, the first is this, to add some form of legality to their proceedings. As I had mentioned, one of the things that, the, that their, the, the Jewish laws, not Mosaic law, not Old Testament law, but the, the laws of the day that they had passed down for centuries, uh, the traditions, one of the, those was that you had a criminal case such as, or uh, yeah, a criminal case like Jesus's, or really a, a capital case like Jesus's, in which there is a an execution possibility, that had to be tried during the day. They just spent all night doing this trial, so they had broken their own rules. And now they're trying to spin it 
they're trying to make it look like, okay, well, technically, yeah, we, ha- we technically didn't come to a conviction until it was daylight. So therefore, it's legal. I mean, you ever, you ever uh, known of somebody trying to cover up their, their, um, their wrongful behavior with something that has the appearance of rightful behavior? That's exactly what they're doing here. And so, in order to make it look somewhat legal, they're going to get back together and, and, and um, make their formal conviction when it is officially daylight. But that totally um, is inconsistent with what they've been doing. Now, the other reason I think they, they did get together is so that they could devise a very specific plan on how they were going to present this to Pilate. Do you know what the Sanhedrin convicted Jesus of? What was Jesus convicted of by the Jewish officials? Blasphemy. So if you look um, at the passage that we just read, or Matthew chapter 26, I'll go there. Matthew 26, verse 65 and 66. The high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Mark 14 says very similar, verse 63 and 64 of Mark 14. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving of death. That's what he's convicted of. And under Mosaic law, blasphemy was a capital offense. But the Jews don't have the authority to execute people. That's, that's a Roman prerogative now that Rome's in control. And Rome doesn't care about blasphemy. I mean, Rome has many deities. So why do they care about offense to one? So, the Sanhedrin knows they can't go to Caiaphas and say, he's guilty of blasphemy, will you kill him for us? That's not going to work. So they have to come up with a different accusation to get Pilate to approve of Jesus' execution. And so, they need to get together and get their story straight so they can present that case to Pilate. And does anybody know what they're going to accuse Jesus of when they stand before Pilate? Anyone? It's not blasphemy, I'll go ahead and tell you that. It ultimately is insurrection. So if you look at Luke chapter 23, in verse 2, when they stand before Pilate, the Sanhedrin says, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And they, they add on to this a little bit in verse 5 of Luke 23 and say, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. So they're accusing Jesus of being anti-Rome, anti-Caesar, and and of trying to recruit people to his call. Insurrection. That's the ultimate accusation before Pilate because that is condemnable by death. And so I think maybe they also got together that morning so that they could get their story straight for when they went to Pilate. 
so that they would have their, 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 uh, their accusation that's worth something when they stand before Pilate. And as the text we read a moment ago concludes, it's after they assembled this one last time at, at daybreak that they bind, bind Jesus and lead him to Pilate. And now we transition out of the Jewish trials into the Roman trials. And that's what I want us to do uh, to read right now. Uh, the, the texts that relate to his Roman trials. When I say Roman trials, what I'm referring to is his appearance, his multiple appearances before Pilate and his appearances before one other Roman official. Anybody know who that is? Herod. We'll talk about both of those in just a moment. Let's read from the text this uh, combined reading uh, from all four Gospels. And as you can follow along with the color coding, and hopefully I'll be able to read tonight, um, but the color coding and the verse numbers and so on. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching them throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. 
Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he, went back to, uh, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barsabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud voices that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a, a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. He released the man who had been thrown into the prison for the insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Now there's much that can be said from this reading. But we'll try to keep it focused tonight as best we can. 
The first thing that happens in this segment of the uh, trials is that Jesus gets examined by Pilate. And John's gospel is the one that provides the greatest amount of information regarding this particular examination, though it is referenced in all of the gospel accounts. Let's first mention who Pilate was. Pontius Pilate was made governor of Judea by Emperor Tiberius in A.D. 26. And he held that appointment until Tiberius' death in A.D. 36. The historian Tacitus referred to Pilate as a Roman procurator. That's a, a, a financial officer. That's someone who collects taxes for Rome to some degree, or oversees, I should say, oversees the collection of taxes for Rome, that sort of thing. So we, we have the title governor used in Scripture, the title procreator used in history, but there is also another uh, title associated with Pilate. Uh, back in 1961, there was an um, inscription found in Caesarea, Caesarea was the uh, primary residence of any Roman official in the area of, uh, of Palestine, of Judea in particular. And that's where Pilate, as governor, would have resided most of the time. During the major feasts and festivals, Pilate would come to Jerusalem because they, he wanted to be there to squash any, any uh, political fervor that rose out of the, uh, the holy events. And so he's there with soldiers stationed in the fortress that's attached to the temple, just awaiting any issues that arise. But in 1961, there was an inscription found with his name on it, with Pontius Pilate's name on the inscription. It's a significant archaeological find proving the existence of Pilate, number one. But that particular inscription uh, had the title Prefect of Judah on it. And a prefect is a military title, referring to the commander of an auxiliary of troops. So Pilate, in history and in archaeology, has two different titles. Now, here's what's interesting. A prefect, which is the title found on the inscription in Caesarea, a prefect's primary responsibility was to maintain peace. A procurator's primary responsibility was for overseeing the collection of taxes. Now, that's not to say that we have a contradiction here. It's probably to say that Pilate had both responsibilities. And that's very interesting when you start considering the accusations against Jesus. The accusation against Jesus, Luke 23, verse 2, that I've already mentioned, we found this man misleading our nation. Someone who's in charge of keeping peace will care about that. Because if he's misleading the nation, that means he's exerting some sort of influence to stir up the nation to follow him. And somebody who wants to keep peace wants to squash any sort of riot or insurrection. The other thing that's said in that Luke 23 passage is that he's forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Now, a procurator, somebody who is responsible for collecting funds for Caesar, is going to care about that. You see, the Sanhedrin was really intelligent. They knew exactly the things to say that someone who is both prefect and procurator would care about. And so both their accusations address the, the known titles associated with Pilate. Now think about this. Pilate, Pilate has been in his position 
from AD 26 to AD 36. That's a 10-year span. Now, Jesus likely died somewhere around AD 30. Now, traditionally, you've probably heard 33 because year zero is supposed to be the year of his birth. And at 30 years of age, he started, he was uh, baptized, his ministry started. We've got about three years worth of ministry, so therefore he died in AD 33. The only problem with that, is, and if you were part of this study, oh, like seven, eight months ago, when we talked about Jesus' birth, the dating of his birth is a little bit off. It's not zero. Because Herod the Great, who tried to have him killed, died in 4 BC. We've learned that since the time of the, uh, this, this calendar system was put in play. We've learned some things that make our dating a little bit more accurate. So Jesus was likely born 4 to 6 BC. And so you've got to bump up his dates a little bit. And so it's, you know, around 30 AD might be a more accurate timetable of his death. And remember, Jesus' ministry is about a three-year ministry from the start of, from his baptism to his death. So let's say if he, if he, was, die, if he was killed in AD 29 or 30, somewhere in there, you back up three years. If you back up three years from AD 29, guess what year it is? AD 26, the year that Pilate comes to his position. So Pilate's been governor of Judea essentially since the start of Jesus' ministry, more than likely. So he's going to hear things. I mean, Jesus has been in Jerusalem several times. He's stirred up some things in Jerusalem on a few occasions. Now, Pilate wasn't always in Jerusalem, but I'm certain the attention that Jesus is drawing from the uh, Sanhedrin, from the scribes, the chief priests, and so on, I'm sure some of that's going to make its way back to Pilate. I don't think Pilate was completely ignorant of who Jesus was by the time Jesus appeared before him that day. Let's also not forget that when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, we are specifically told in Scripture that there are some soldiers there. The word employed references Roman soldiers, not just the uh, temple police that worked for the Sanhedrin. And in order for some Roman soldiers to be present in that garden, they had to be approved by Pilate to be there. There's been conversations between the Sanhedrin and Pilate leading up to this more than likely. I don't think Pilate was just now finding out all this information. I think some of it already existed, and he's working with the, the situation uh, with a little bit of, of previous knowledge, to say the least. And they're meeting in a place called the Praetorium. Now, uh, technically, the Praetorium was the official residence of the Roman governor in a given location. So the Praetorium is not always a specific place, but it's the term used for wherever the governor is. Now, there was a, a particular um, facility in Jerusalem that uh, governors like Pilate would normally stay. Uh, it was a, a facility uh, known as Herod's Palace. Uh, it's a, 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 some, a place constructed by Herod the Great at one point in time, and Rome uh, would utilize it. More than likely, the place where Her uh, Pilate was when they brought him to him. Um, what's interesting is the statement made in John chapter 19 and verse 28 that I'm sorry, not in John chapter 19, verse 28. Oh, yeah, there it is. I had to find it. About the, uh, the chief priests and the rulers not wanting to enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not defile themselves. The concern over defilement stems from a rabbinical teaching recorded in Mishnah Ohaloth, 
which says the dwelling places of non-Jews are unclean. In other words, the rabbinical teaching, not Mosaic law, but the rabbinical teaching took statements out of Mosaic law and drew the conclusion that the residence of a Gentile was an unclean place, and if a Jewish person entered it, they would automatically be unclean. And so that really feeds to some of the, the um, dynamics that you read in the New Testament, that understanding, that, that, that existence of that rabbinical teaching helps us understand some of the hatred between Jews and Gentiles early in the church's life and how there are these, these problems even with fellowship of, of Jewish Christians even spending time eating with Gentile Christians. But these, uh, these religious leaders did not want to be defiled by this because this wasn't just a one-day defilement. In Mosaic Law, there are some ways in which you, you get defiled, and by the end of the day, you can uh, make a sacrifice or take a bath, essentially, be clean again. This was not a one-day defilement. This one would have fallen in the seven-day defilement. And here's the problem. They're in the midst of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It starts with the Passover, but includes seven days of feast. They are in the midst of that. And, and just because it refers to Passover here doesn't mean it's referring, it has to refer to that specific meal with the lamb that Jesus already ate. This is not a passage that's necessarily suggesting that Jesus observed the Passover on the wrong day. Because the entire feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which follows the Passover, sometimes the word Passover would be used to reference the entirety of the, that, those two feasts put together. Anyway, they're concerned about having to miss out on the rest of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They do not want to be defiled for the next week. So that's their concern here. They won't even go into Pilate's courtroom, I guess you could say throne room or whatever it is, because they don't want to be defiled. It's interesting. We've got these religious leaders who are so scrupulous, and I'm quoting an author here, so scrupulous about not entering the house of a Gentile in order to avoid being ceremonially defiled, but at the same time, they're morally defiled by the way they just handled the events with Jesus. They're willing to compromise law, rabbinical teaching, when it comes to how they did the trial of Jesus, but they're not going to defile themselves going into a Gentile's house. These guys are hypocrites. Nothing less than hypocrites. And what th this verse really reveals that. Now, throughout the course of their time with Pilate, Jesus will be pulled aside by Pilate and have one-on-one -on -one conversations with him. And one of the uh, most unique ones conversations is when Pilate just straight asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? In fact, that's recorded, that question is recorded in all four gospel accounts. And it's born, that question is born out of the accusation brought by the Sanhedrin. Luke chapter 23, verse 1, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, when a Roman official hears that someone's claiming to be king, what's his chief concern going to be? All right, is this guy trying to overthrow Rome? Is this guy trying to usurp Caesar? Is this guy trying to start a new kingdom? That sort of thing. And so Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? 
that's a title that has not been employed since Herod the Great died. And Jesus is hesitant to some degree to answer that question because Jesus understands that the question is a loaded question. When Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews, Jesus cannot give a straight yes or no answer. Because, for some people, that is a political question. Someone like um, Pilate is going to be more concerned with the political uh, interpretation of that question. Are you the leader of the Jewish nation, of this ethnicity of people, that ha- are, are you in opposition to Caesar and Rome's authority here? But to others, that is a theological question. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who's been promised to save Israel? See, Jesus, can't answer, can't, Jesus would answer no to the political aspects of that question, but he would answer yes to the Messiah aspect of the question. It was a loaded question. And so Jesus is very careful in how he responds to that. In fact, Jesus kind of redefines what's being asked. If you notice, Jesus provides a a definition of his kingship in terms of what it is and is not. He begins by defining what it's not. My kingdom is not of this world. In so doing, he eliminates the political implications of that question. It's not of this world, so Caesar does not have to be concerned. Rome does not have to be concerned because my kingdom has nothing to do with this world. Jesus then defines what his kingdom is. In John chapter 18, verse 37, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. He indicates that his kingdom is a kingdom of truth. And Jesus' careful response is saying, here's what my kingdom is, here's what my kingdom is not. It has nothing to do with politics, it has everything to do with truth. And that's when Pilate asks a question that has become a very popular question in, in our postmodern, lineal, and what's the next generation? No, not Gen X. Gen X would, would have been in more in a postmodern. But anyway, a, come on, guys back there. I know some of y'all know Gen Z. Thank you. Thank you. Are you a Gen Z-er? No, you're a millennial. Yeah. This gener- these generations love the question, what is truth? Pilate would fit in well in the 2000s, with that question. And I would love to have heard Jesus' response to that, but it's not recorded. What is truth? You can see that, that, that Pilate is struggling with, re, I don't want to say reality, but he's, he's struggling with answers. For someone to ask what is truth, there's conflict in his own conscience. And so Jesus and Pilate have this wonderful discussion. And it's interesting Because Pilate comes out of his conversations with Jesus, asserting Jesus' innocence. Three times, three times, Pilate will pronounce Jesus to be innocent of any charges that would result in his execution. John chapter 18, verse 38, after privately interrogating Jesus, 
Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Then in John chapter 19 and verse 4, after punishing Jesus with the flogging, Pilate presented him bloodied and beaten to the crowds, and he said, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then finally, after the crowds began to chant, crucify him, Pilate responded, John chapter 19 and verse 6, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And that's when he washed his hands. Three times the highest ranking Roman official in, in, in Judea will say that Jesus is innocent. And we're even told in John chapter 19 and verse 12 that Pilate sought to release Jesus. So how is it that the highest-ranking Roman official can declare Jesus' innocence three times and Jesus still end up on a cross? It ultimately comes down to this. Pilate cared more about placating the Jews than doing what is right. And to placate the Jews, no, no actually to placate himself, to placate his own conscience, he attempts Various strategies to try and free Jesus. And that's how the, rest, the, the remainder of the story of his Roman trials plays out. Everything that happens from here is, a, is an attempt by Pilate to free Jesus and avoid responsibility when things go haywire. The first way he tries to uh, free Jesus and to avoid responsibility himself is by sending him to Herod. Now, Luke is the only one that really records this uh, part of the story for us. But Jesus will be sent to Herod Antipas to be interrogated, to be examined by him. Now, there are three Herods mentioned in Scripture, and just for the sake of clarity, because I, I get confused by them sometimes myself. First, you have Herod the Great. He was the, the last king of the Jews. He was king of... He was ruling over Judea when Jesus was born. He's the Herod that killed all the babies. He's a wretched, horrible person. Herod Antipas, who is the key figure in this story at Jesus' trial, is one of Herod the Great's sons. The, thing that, the other thing that stands out about Herod Antipas is that he was an op opponent of John the Baptist. So Herod Antipas, what he is best known for is a horribly, horrible-sounding marriage scenario. Herod Antipas, the youngest son of Herod the Great, he divorced his first wife in order to marry a woman named Herodias. Now, his Herodias was his half-brother's daughter. But worse than that, she was the previous wife of his half-brother, Herod Philip I. And their relationship is the one condemned by John the Baptist. That His condemnation of their relationship eventually resulted in his imprisonment and his death by beheading. And so John the Baptist stood opposed to Herod Antipas, and it cost him his life. We also do find out in the interaction, or when Jesus is sent to Herod Antipas, Luke does tell us 
that Herod Antipas was eager to meet Jesus, but because he wanted to see one of these miracles he's heard about. Remember, Herod Antipas is the guy who reigns over Galilee. There's other regions he reigns over too. Pilate only has authority over Judea. Herod Antipas has Galilee. It's part of this uh, ongoing special relationship with the Herodian dynasty. Herod Antipas is the guy who's in charge of Galilee all during Jesus' ministry. So he's hearing about all these miracles that are taking place in Capernaum and, and, and all these miracles that are happening around the Sea of Galilee. He's hearing the most about Jesus of anyone. So he's intrigued. He wants, he wants to meet Jesus because he wants to see one of these miracles. But Jesus, did never, Jesus never performed signs on demand. And he's not going to for Herod Antipas either. Now it's also interesting that there was a time in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 13, verse 31 and 32, we're told Herod Antipas, or Jesus was warned, I should say, by some Pharisees. Can you trust what the Pharisees say? But Jesus was warned by some Pharisees that Herod Antipas wanted to kill him. And one of, the, one of my favorite little one-liners from Jesus is, he tells him, you go tell that fox. He branded Herod Antipas a fox. I would imagine the Pharisees probably shared that with Herod Antipas just to get him riled up at Jesus. But the, there, there are these little snippets of information for Herod Antipas's life in the Gospels that relate to Jesus. Um, one of the things that I find most fascinating is that eventually there's a woman named Joanna in Luke chapter 8 and verse 3. She is the wife of Herod Antipas's household manager. So you remember what Joseph was to Potiphar? That's what we're talking about. That man's wife, the steward of Herod Antipas' house, his wife became a follower and supporter of Jesus during his ministry. So there are all these little connections. And Jesus is brought before Herod Antipas, won't say a word to him. And so what does Herod Antipas do? He has his men... Mock Jesus. They're the first ones to dress Jesus up. In fact, Herod Antipas, if you paid attention to the reading, he dresses Jesus in splendid clothing like a king and makes him go back to Pilate dressed like that. The first true mocking of Jesus as a king happens with Herod Antipas, but it continues through the course of these events as well. And so Jesus makes his way back to Pilate. That was Pilate's first attempt. That was his first attempt to avoid responsibility and to give Jesus a way out. Think about this. In sending Jesus to Herod, Pilate has the possibility of passing the buck by saying, okay, if Herod condemns him, then it's, all, then it's off me. It's Herod's fault. That, that's one possibility here. Another possibility is if I send him to Herod Antipas, and Herod finds nothing wrong with him, then guess what? I had a second opinion. I had another authoritative person stamp of approval on my decision. I think maybe the other thing in play here is, because if, if Herod Antipas finds nothing wrong with Jesus, well, Pilate knows Herod Antipas knows Jewish law better than he does. So maybe that stamp of approval isn't just from a Roman official, but from somebody who has some familiarity with the Jews that Pilate doesn't have. 
So Pilate's trying to give Jesus a way out, but more importantly, Pilate's trying to give himself a way out. And that effort continues with the next thing that happens. Now, Pilate had already pronounced Jesus innocent, but his fear of Jewish revolt and subsequent imperial intervention kept him from releasing Jesus. So he set about the process of finding a compromise that would appease the Jews and simultaneously uphold his proclamation of innocence. That backfired with Herod Antipas, so he has to go to plan B. And plan B is the Barabbas option. So, apparently, some, at some point in history, whether it started with Pilate or uh, one of his predecessors, there came this tradition that one prisoner would be released every year at Passover. It's interesting to me, why hasn't Pilate done this already? Like, has Pilate forgotten about this? It's also interesting to me because the Gospels differ on who initiated this, this option of releasing a prisoner because according to Matthew chapter, 23, chapter 27, verse 17, the choice between Barabbas and Jesus was initiated by Pilate. But if you look at Mark 15, Luke 23, or John 18, it seems that the choice was initiated by the Jews as if they reminded him of this option. We don't know exactly who initiated it, but Pilate sees it as his escape route. Here's what you should know about Barabbas, though. Barabbas is his surname, so to speak. Anybody know what his first name is? One of the greatest ironies in Scripture. According to a few ancient manuscripts, his full name was Jesus Barabbas. This may be why Pilate, when he referenced Jesus, would speak, as, uh, speak of Jesus who is called Christ, to differentiate him from Jesus who is called Barabbas. The name Barabbas means son of the Father. Now that could be a reference to, you know, son of whoever his father is, or son of the father. We don't know for sure. But if they both had the, sir, the, the name Jesus as their first name, that is a very interesting situation. Who do you want? Jesus or Jesus? And they chose the wrong Jesus. Barabbas is associated here. His, his crimes are insurrection, rebellion, uh, and uh, he's identified as a robber and a murderer. We don't know the extent of his full crimes or, or, or anything, but it appears that he was involved in, a, in an insurrection against Rome, and in the process, he killed somebody, at the very least. And Pilate is thinking, okay, this is a violent guy. The, the Jews are not going to want me to release to them a violent individual who could take their life. So they're certainly going to choose Jesus because Jesus isn't violent. Jesus isn't a threat to their life, just to their theology. So Pilate thinks, okay, here's my way out. 
There's no way they're going to choose Barabbas. I'm sure when the idea of, of throwing, uh, giving a, a prisoner or freeing a prisoner came up, Pilate's sitting there going, okay, who do I got back there? Who's the worst guy I got back there? Who is the worst possible candidate to put up here with Jesus? He underestimated the Jews that day because they chose Barabbas. That was his second way of avoiding responsibility here and trying to give Jesus an out. It too failed. So he goes to plan C, to the third thing. His third plan is, I will just punish him so severely that it will appease them and they won't want his death. And so he sends him to be flogged, or as other translation or, or other gospels say, scourged. Matthew and Mark use the word scourged. John uses the word flogged. And that one thing that stands out to me about these narratives of Jesus's suffering and death is that the word flogged or the word crucified is the only detail we have. But those two words are so big in what they imply. Here's the way one commentator describes it, the flogging. Tied to a post, the condemned person would be beaten with a flagellum, a leather whip with metal knotted into its thongs, This whipping bloodied the victim's back, leaving strips of flesh hanging from the wounds. And the ones who administered the flogging would be the Roman soldiers. I think the text speaks of them gathering the whole company, which that would be about 600 men. One-tenth of a legion would be a company if those troops were at complete strength. So imagine this herd of soldiers gathered around this one individual who's tied to a post. I don't think every soldier got a whip and got to to hit Jesus. I think there were trained men who were skilled and had perfected this form of torture. But there are other men who have been there for entertainment purposes, I'm sure. And as I mentioned, they use this whip called uh, the flagellum. And, and, as, and the, the author I read from said that they would have pieces of metal or, or iron woven in. They might even use pieces of bone. Anything that was sharp, anything that could impale, anything that could stick and rip, they wanted in the ends of those whips. You've probably heard before how many times one could be whipped in a flogging. Does anybody know? How many? Jewish law says 40. And so in the practice of Jews, they would only count to 39 just in case they missed one. You may have grown up hearing that. But that was Jewish law, not Roman law. And these are Roman soldiers, not Jewish soldiers administering According to from the research I did, Roman law has no limit. It's just until the soldiers get tired. I wonder exactly how many, 
times Jesus got hit. I showed a, a screenshot from uh, the movie The Passion of the Christ that came out in 2004 a moment ago. How many of y'all seen that? Not that I'm trying to advance any particular movie or anything like that. The, the scene that got me the most was the flogging. To see what that might look like. And what got me the most in that scene was when the um, officer looked at the soldiers, and if you haven't seen this, hopefully I can explain it well, and he does this. And what he's telling them to do is turn him over so that you're not just whipping his back. And I started thinking about how painful that would be to have those things hitting my chest, hitting my thighs. And they show one scene where one of them wraps around and grabs his face. The picture of Jesus standing next to Pilate after the flogging in that movie, he looks like roadkill. And I'm certain that's probably what he really looked like. When you look at, say, the painting that I have on the screen right now, it doesn't look like there's a scratch on him. You watch Jesus' films, they'll put three, four, five big scratches across his body. But that's not how it would end up. He would have been shredded. It would have been very easy for him to die just from the blood loss of this but he didn't. And the reason the, Rome, the Romans would do this oftentimes before a crucifixion is, is to, as one author said, weaken the victim's constitution so that it would shorten the time to take him to die on the cross. Now I want you to think, when Jesus was in the garden, he had those sweat drops of blood. I talked about that a couple weeks ago. The immense stress he was under during that time of prayer was so great that blood capillaries in his head were bursting, producing the red pigmented sweat that came out. It's called hematidrosis. He was already physically exhausted. His body was already having these little breakdowns from the stress. Now you add this on top of that. In addition to that, he's going to be mocked tremendously during this period. Matthew chapter 27, verse 28 tells us that he was stripped of his clothing. He was probably nude as he was tied to that post and whipped however many times. And after this flogging, with all these open wounds, with all this sticky blood pouring over his body, that's when we're told they draped a scarlet robe over him. Can you imagine when that got pulled off later? Opening up all of those wounds again? And then, of course, 
You're probably familiar with that crown of thorns they drove into his skull. Again, I love the movie and artistic depictions of that because those little thorns are only about that long. Looks like it just poke you a little bit. But it was probably a good bit bigger than that. You ever had a head wound? Man, that thing bleeds, doesn't it? A little cut on your head will bleed profusely. You can get a, a cut somewhere else in your body. It, it, it might barely bleed at all, but on your head, it's, it's going to pour. It's also worth pointing out that they gave him a pretend scepter, a rod to hold. And then Matthew chapter 27, verse 30, and Mark chapter 15, verse 19 tell us that he, they took that scepter out of his hands and struck him on the head after the crown of thorns had been placed on him. So they essentially hammered that crown of thorns into his skull. And then, of course, that wasn't enough humiliation, so they sped on him and struck him with their hands. By the end of this, Jesus is truly a broken man physically. I, I, I don't know how he had the energy to stand up, much less carry a cross a little while later. We often turn our attention to the crucifixion and the pain of it. But can you imagine, before he ever got to Calvary, how much blood he had lost, how many nerves had been severed, how many muscles had been ripped, how many bones were exposed to the open air? How much pain he was already in? Calvary is awful. But let's never forget the full picture of what he endured that day for us. We'll wrap up there, and next week we will conclude uh, the last part of this Roman trial, which is when he appears before Pilate the last time, and then we will uh, make our way to the cross. Uh, will you bow with me for a word of prayer as we close out? Our Heavenly Father, it is humbling and sobering when we take time to look at what Jesus endured for us. And Lord, we are grateful that he was willing to go through that so that our sins can be forgiven but we are sorry that he had to go through that because we have sins. Lord, we thank you for your love and for Jesus' obedience. We thank you that he was willing to endure such horrible treatment, such torture for us. And may we live worthy of that. We love you, Lord, and it's through the name of Jesus that we pray.